0: morning Hagerstown Church. It's a privilege to be with you again this morning on this Lord's Day. Hope you've got your copy of God's Word and are uh, ready to hear from the Lord again this morning. I want to say something that you probably won't hear me say a whole lot more and you've probably not ever heard a pastor say this before, Um, but while I'm preaching this morning I want to ask you to pull out your cell phone and to log on to Facebook. So whether you're watching uh, this on your, uh, your computer, your cell phone, or on your television, whatever it is, I want to ask you to be on Facebook as well at the same time and uh, to go find the video of this, uh, of this streaming right now and to go down to the comments section and interact. Let us know that you're there, that you're watching it. Well, even if you're watching on YouTube, log on to Facebook on your phone. Let us know that you're watching and uh, share this uh, sermon. Uh, make sure that uh, your friends and family know that, uh, that we're worshiping the Lord again this morning. And also, I, want, I wanted you just to be uh, interacting with me as much as is possible. And so if you uh, if you hear a, a, a point or, or a particular part of application that really uh, rang true or hit home for you, I want to encourage you to just uh, quote me there in uh, the comments or uh, maybe share, as I did last week, a share a part there in the comments of the scripture that we read that meant the most to you. Uh, I think this is a great way for us both to encourage one another, but also to let our light shine before men. Um, as because we know that there are lots of, uh, of folks that are watching from all around the world that are on Facebook and watching uh, pastors as they preach and, and peering into the windows of the church, as it were, there on Sunday morning. and So this is a great opportunity for us to let our light shine, and uh, I want to encourage you to be a part of that. If you've got your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 2. This, this morning we begin our second chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And so we'll be looking at verses 1 all the way down to verse number 12. And so let's read God's word together this morning. Uh, it'll be on your screen if you don't have it, but here we go. The Bible says this, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get him near because of the crowd, they removed the roof from above him. And when they had made an opening, they let him down, on the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, that is our prayer this morning, that as your people gather there here at the table to receive the, the meat of your word this morning, we pray that you would encourage us and that you would bless us as we read. Father, we pray that your, your beauty would shine through this text this morning, Jesus, that your divinity would be clearly grasped. God, if there's somebody watching this this morning, whether they be a a part of Hagerstown Church or a resident of Hagerstown or maybe someone on the other side of the globe, Father, we pray that they would see and sense the truth of Jesus' divinity and that because he is the Son of Man, the Son of God, we must believe his message and repent and turn to him. God, again, we pray blessings on your people from Hagerstown Church, as we gather in our homes, away from one another, but near in spirit, we pray that you would bless our hearts, that you would knit them together. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen. You probably already recognize this if you pay attention to our feed and are part of Hagerstown Church, that this is not the first time in recent months that we've uh, actually preached or looked at this account. Uh, back in January, I actually preached on this very story, and it's also found in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke. But that particular sermon that I preached was based on Luke's account, and it's very, very similar. And uh, But uh, what I want to point out to you this morning is the main point that Mark is driving at. And while Matthew and Luke and Mark will all have a very similar story, if not identical, the point, as this story is found in its context in each book, will we'll be pointing and emphasizing something slightly different. And so uh, what I believe is the main point that Mark is drawing our attention to this morning, and uh, and I want to draw your attention to as well, is in verse, chapter, or verse 2 of chapter 2. Sorry, verse 10 of chapter 2. We'll get it. And this is what Jesus says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So, Mark wants us to see this morning that Jesus uh, made his identity very, very clear. There wasn't to be any confusion in that area. And so, to, to date, Mark has offered for us three titles. Um, by, uh, uh, for Jesus. So the first one, quickly, is found in chapter 1, verse 1, and that's Christ. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. That's the equivalent. Christ equals Messiah. He's the long-awaited-for Messiah, the one that would save his the, his people. And so Jesus is the Christ. But we also see in chapter 1 that Jesus is the Son of God, and and, and we could really hash this back out, but I would just encourage you to go back through the series as, as to what the Son of God actually means, but it, it doesn't mean lesser. It means equal to, emanating from, beloved Son of God. And Jesus is not one of the sons of God, but he is the Son of God, uh, referring to on that level, he is the only one. But then this morning, this passage, it offers for us another title, another handle as we try to understand who it is that Jesus is. And that title is Son of Man. I referenced it, found in chapter 2, verse 10. This is the most frequently used Uh, title that Jesus uses of himself. It's his favorite title for himself. What we see, he uses it here in chapter 2 twice. He uses it in chapter 8 twice. He uses it in chapter 9 three times, in chapter 10 two times, in chapter 13 once, and in chapter 14 he uses it three times. And so Jesus loves this title for himself, and it it associates him typically with humility and suffering. You may be asking why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? Well, there's two reasons I want to point to this morning. One is because it's biblical. It, it, re, it connects the, the Old Testament really with the New Testament, with, with uh, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and the promise that we find in the Old Testament and the, and the fulfillment found in the New Testament. Um, but, but what's more than that is um, you might say, well, why does Jesus, if, if it points to his divinity, um, but also his hum- humility, his humanity, why does he not just say, why doesn't he stick with Son of God? We see that he's a man, but he's also the Son of God. Well, the Son of Man literally, that title, does the exact opposite that the Son of Man does. Um, Neither one of them are are excluding the other. So there's this hypostatic union. There's that Jesus is both God and man, 100% God and 100% man. Well, you might say, well, still, why why if this title points to his divinity, why is it emphasizing his humanity? Um, I want to use an illustration. Maybe you remember the stories of Curious George. I, I loved those stories when I was a kid, and we have made sure that our children have heard those stories as well, and had the books, and they've even had blankies that were, uh, that were the Curious George thing. But either way, Um, You might remember the caretaker for Curious George, the owner, if you will, the man who found Curious George. His name was the man with the yellow hat. Kids, you probably just helped me out there. But he's the man with the yellow hat. Um, You might say, "Well, well, why wasn't he just called the man? Well, it was obvious that the man with the yellow hat was a man. But then there was this identifier that was tagged on with his name, that he was not just a man, he wasn't just the man, but he was the man with the yellow hat. And it assured that he was. Uh, there was some specificity that was given, that he would, wouldn't just be lost in the sea of men, but he would, he would stand out. He was the one with the yellow hat. Well, in a similar way, Jesus Christ was the Son of Man. His divinity in this title is implied. It's obvious. He is, in a sense, the man. Well, the man with the yellow hat is the man. Jesus is the God who is the Son of Man. And so it's emphasized... His humanity, but it's implying his divinity. I don't know if that was confusing or helpful. I, I it made sense in my mind. Maybe it would help you, but it's just it's also a reference. The Son of Man. It's a reference to Daniel chapter seven. I quickly want to read that passage for you. It's verses thirteen and following. Daniel says, "I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days." Yahweh, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus uses this title, the Son of Man, he is implying his divinity But he is emphasizing his humility, which is, in a sense, his incarnation. As he's come in Philippians chapter 2, he's come down to earth. He's took on flesh, and he's dwelt among us, as John tells us. And so what is Mark's main idea? It's connected with this idea that Jesus is the Son of Man. Here it is. Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Son of Man, we must repent and believe his gospel. Let me say that again. Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Son of Man, we must repent and believe his gospel. This passage offers us three points this morning, three proofs, rather, that Jesus is in fact the Son of God and the Son of Man, that he is himself deity, the second person in the Trinity. And the first point, the first proof, rather, is this. He forgives sin. He forgives sin. I imagine that the carriers of the gospel, or I'm sorry, the, the carriers that were carrying this man that had heard the gospel there in chapter one when Jesus was preaching in the synagogue and preaching outside Peter's house. Imagine they heard that message and they ran back, began to tell the paralytic man, the one who couldn't walk, that was destined to stay on his bed, on his mat. As they relayed to him the, the, the truths of the gospel and the excitement of the gospel, I wonder if he then began to ponder parts of the sermon that were relayed to him. And he desired to, to hear this teacher, this preacher, this rabbi. He wanted to hear him for himself. So he, maybe I imagine he spoke with his friends and his carriers and his family members, and he said, I, I want to hear this man for myself. I want to hear the truths of this gospel for myself. I want to hear the Son of Man with my own ears, maybe the 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 parts of the sermon that he had relayed began to work into his heart. Maybe the spirit of God was convicting him of his own sin. I believe that that was taking place. I want you to notice something that as these men back in the passage that we read just a moment ago, as they bring this paralytic to Jesus, that they 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 bring they tear the roof off, they climb up the side steps, they tear the roof off. I deal with all that in the previous sermon. Look for it in our in our January series. But We can assume that their motivation in doing all this was not just simply that the paralytic be healed, and maybe not that he be healed at all. I believe that they were looking, that this paralytic was looking for forgiveness of sins. I believe that he is the first man to be recorded in the Gospel of Mark to actually respond in an appropriate manner to Jesus' message to repent and believe the Gospel Notice they never even ask for a healing. In verse 30 of chapter 1, Jesus is asked by by Peter's family that he heal his mother-in-law. They tell him about him. They say, hey, this, this woman is sick. It's implied that they ask him to heal. In verse 40 of chapter 1, the leper comes and finds Jesus, kneels at his feet, and implores him, begs him that he heal him. But this is different. The paralytic is not recorded as asking Jesus to heal him. It's not a detail that just randomly was left out. I believe he doesn't ask to be healed. I believe that his intentions and being there in the presence of Jesus was that he receive forgiveness of sins, that he hear himself. I believe as he's being let down, he hears the gospel being proclaimed from the lips of the Son of Man. And in his heart, he responds. This paralytic doesn't ask. The men don't ask. Jesus preaching the word again and again. Repent and believe the gospel. And here, this morning, the first gospel, or the first convict, convert, is recorded. This paralyzed man recognized that he needed to come to Jesus to be saved from the burden of his sin. That stands in contrast to all the people that have been recorded in Mark so far. This man knew that his greatest need was, was that his sin be forgiven. And by the way, that's been the the, the mantra that we have applied or I've drawn from this first chapter of Mark that our greatest need is not that we be uh, rescued from COVID-19 or from cancer or from heart failure or from diabetes or from some mental illness, though those be grave illnesses. Our greatest need, hear me, hear Jesus here now, See in the life of this paralytic that the greatest need that any of us have is that our sins be forgiven. And that is a need that was met in the life of this paralytic. Jesus responds to this man by declaring that his sins are forgiven. And how do the scribes and the religious experts of the day that are present there with Jesus, how do they respond? Well, they say in their hearts, who can forgive sin but God alone? And I, I have to agree with these guys this morning that they're not wrong. No one, no one can forgive sins but but God alone. And by the way, you might say, well, what if I sin against somebody else? Can't they forgive us? Well, in the words of David, when he had sinned against Bathsheba, when he had sinned against Uriah, when he had sinned against his people, his kingdom, he said, speaking to God, against you and you only have I sinned. He he puts in perspective for us, that every single sin that we commit is ultimately a sin against God. He reminds us of that. Every single sin we commit is ultimately, primarily against God. The law that God says and offers for us you shall not steal, you shall not steal toilet paper, you shall not steal food, you shall not steal paper clips from work, whatever it is, whether you steal from Walmart or whether you steal from your office. Ultimately, you have sinned against God primarily. All sin is against God. So with that in mind, we recognize that while your office, your, your company can forgive you, and Walmart can forgive you, that God has to be the one that finally forgives This is an idea that we see recognized in the Old Testament, that God is the one who forgives. Again, remember, David says, against you and you only have I sinned as he confesses. But also in Psalm 32, the psalmist says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin." Psalm 86, 5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And so the scribes gathered that morning. They're not wrong. Truly, they're not. No one can forgive sins but God alone. But there's a part that they're missing in their estimation. There's a part that they're missing as they look on because here's the part. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. God. One of my favorite reality shows um, are probably the ones that, uh, that are centered around people purchasing something that they haven't really seen, or they don't really know the value of. I've seen this in um, uh, uh, real estate shows, but I, I think I love uh, this, uh, this theme in uh, Storage Wars. They open it up just a tiny bit, they let you see in just for a second, and then everybody begins to bid. And you don't want to bid too high. You don't want to to say, hey, well, this is how much I'll give, and it'd actually be worth far less. Sometimes at the end of the day, after they've cleaned it all out and they've counted up uh, how much they think they've made, sometimes there's celebration, but oftentimes, more, uh, more times than not, there is, in fact, mourning. Well, what's different about Jesus is that he doesn't have to guess about what's in your heart. He doesn't have to wonder about how many sins he has just said are forgiven or how many sins are covered because Jesus knows. As he looks on at this paralytic, he doesn't have to guess. Well, he looks like he's a decent guy. He looks like, uh, you know, he hasn't sinned too much. And so I'll go ahead and, son, I'll forgive you. No, Jesus knows exactly the amount of sins and the weight of each and every one of the sins. By the way, he knows them intimately because he'll soon bear them on his own body on the cross. But Jesus doesn't have to guess about how many sins this man has committed. Jesus knows exactly how many sins. Why and how? Because Jesus reads the heart. In other words, Jesus sees the heart. This is the second proof of Jesus' identity as the Son of Man, as we saw in verse number 10. And so we see that Jesus reads the heart's. He doesn't just read the hearts of the the, the scribes, as we saw just a moment ago, and we'll see again, but he reads the hearts of the crowd. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. It's one of the reasons why he left Capernaum to preach elsewhere. He had preached there in the synagogue. He had healed Peter's mother-in-law that one Sabbath day. They had gathered around the house there, and he had healed many and taught and preached. The next morning, he gets up, and he, he spends time with the Father, and he prays, and at the end of his prayer, the disciples come and find him, and they say, Jesus, it's time to get going. We got to go. There's people here in Capernaum that need you. They, they want to they hear you preach. They want to they see you perform more miracles and heal more people, and Jesus says, no, we're getting out of here. We've got other places to go. Jesus, he says, God, God, the Father has called me to preach the gospel, and that's what I aim to do, and so he leaves. Well, one of the reasons why I believe he left was because he knew what was in the heart of those in Capernaum. They wanted signs. They wanted healings. They wanted miracles, but Jesus desired to preach the gospel, and as confirmation of the disposition that I'm estimating in this crowd, I want you to notice that, that they wouldn't get out of the way Here this paralytic man was being carried to Jesus. The crowd no doubt knew that he could heal. What what did they do? They they stood firmly in their way. They wouldn't get out of the way. Well, they were were focused on their own needs. They were focused on their own desires. They were looking for more miracles. They wanted to hear more teaching. Their selfish intentions were obvious here. But Jesus already knew that. Jesus already knew the shallowness of so many of the crowds that would gather around him in his earthly ministry here on earth and so in a way we see that Jesus saw the heart of the crowds but he also saw the heart of the paralytic and the men that were with him in contrast these men along with the paralytic were displaying a faith in the message of Jesus that there was even a a demonstration of repentance in their hearts and Jesus saw it that's why he forgave the man's sin we might say well this is weird. I don't see the connection between these men carrying Jesus, uh, carrying this paralytic to Jesus and then Jesus healing the man on the bed, the paralytic from his sins, that you say, I don't see the connection between the two. That's because we miss the fact that Jesus sees the heart of this man. Coupled with the fact that, we, that it's absent, that he asked to be healed, demonstrates to us that this man had come for forgiveness of sins. He had responded to the message that Jesus had been proclaiming. Jesus knew his motivations. He knew the motivations of the paralytic. He knew the motivations of those who were carrying him. But we also see the motivation of the scribes. We also see the, Jesus sees the hearts of the scribes. Here in, the, in, in this crowd, there are many scribes likely. One in particular we know He'd been sent there maybe, we can estimate, to determine who it was that was stirring up the people in Capernaum. Likely this was connected to the fact that the leper had not obeyed and and had told many people on the way to Jerusalem and likely went to Jerusalem and was was, uh, 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 proclaimed to be healed or cleansed. So this stirs up the people, and so perhaps uh, Jerusalem and the the folks there, they send some scribes down to find out who is this Jesus. And now the trap is set in a sense. The man has his opportunity. The scribe or group of scribes have their opportunity there at likely Peter's mother-in-law's house, or Peter's house rather, there in Capernaum to hear and to see what is actually taking place, who this Jesus truly is. And so sitting there listening to Jesus, they hear Jesus declare that some man has had his sins forgiven on the authority of Jesus himself. And so they begin to think to themselves, no man can actually do that. And Jesus, he, he sees their hearts. He hears their thoughts. He knows what they're thinking. The idea that, that a being could see and, and the thoughts and intentions of, of the heart is it's not unheard of at this time. Because, in fact, it's, it was thought and known that God could do those things. Just as no one could heal, or I'm sorry, no one could forgive sins, also nobody can read the minds of others except for God. Psalm chapter 7, verse number 9, this should kind of uh, send a shiver up our spines. It says this, Oh, let the evil and wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, speaking the psalmist to God, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. Psalm 19.14 says this, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The things that come off of and out of your mouth, may they be acceptable in the sight of God. May the meditations of your heart be acceptable in your sight. You see, you know God for a fact. He hears the things that you say that come out of your mouth. But not only does he hear the things that come out of your mouth, but the formed and yet unlaunched thoughts of the mind, he also sees and he also hears. Psalm twenty six two says, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. The psalmist declares here that God has the ability to test the heart to test the mind. There's so many more here. Psalm 38:9 says, "O oh Lord, all my longing is before you; my sighing is not hidden from you." Psalm 44:21: Would not God discover this? For He knows the secrets of the heart. In my favorite psalm that points to this fact is in, is found in Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts afar off. Before a word verse 4 is even formed on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. And so it's ironic that they think in their hearts that only God can forgive sin because only God can read hearts. And so there's some irony here. And if I'm honest, Like these scribes, I don't always live in light of the fact that God knows my heart. I'll take it a step farther. It's sad to say, but I don't always act like God sees my actions either. That's a confession on on my part. The Sermon on the Mount, it gives us a little more of a detailed look into the law of God as Jesus begins to exposit the law. And he says this, That God doesn't just judge our actions, he doesn't just see our actions, but he sees our thoughts and he judges them as well. And that though you uh, may not be a murderer on the outside, you likely are a murderer on the inside. I know that's the case for me. A murderer, an adulterer, an idolater. Because God doesn't just look on the outward, he looks on the heart. And so how does that make you feel this morning? To know that Jesus, that God, knows your thoughts, and that he knows your actions, and none of them are hid from him. He knows the thoughts of the paralytic. He knows the thoughts of the crowd. He knows their intentions and desires, and he knows the thoughts of the scribes that are gathered there this morning. With all these things, he knows the thoughts of us as well. And so for some of us, We operate as if deleting our browsing history somehow uh, is a comprehensive form of hiding our sin and hiding it from God. And objectifying people, it's sinful. It's a degradation of the image of God that each human being bears. It's placed there by God. And he sees whether your parents or your spouse or your accountability partner do. Jesus sees it. God sees it. He knows the heart. He knows the lust. He sees it. Husband, father, the way that you treat your family behind closed doors, whether you are disrespectful to your wife, whether you uh, treat her in a respectful way, in a caring way, in a tender way, whether you engage your children, mother, father, whether you actively nurture them in the admonition of the Lord, or whether you leave them to their own devices, The Lord is witnessing the thoughts that you have towards them or the thoughts that you don't have, he sees. The times of doubt that you have in your own heart, he sees. I'm sorry to report this to you, but what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. What happens in the mind doesn't stay in the mind that God he can see through the borders of Nevada. He can see through the borders of your cranium what happens in our hearts. He sees. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He knows the very motivation for why you do the good things and why you do the bad things. He knows what's on your heart. He knows that some of you feel unworthy of grace and in some ways struggle to believe and even reject forgiveness because you don't think it's possible. The God who forgives is also the God who sees the heart. I want you to focus on the two proofs here, the fact that God forgives sin. Jesus forgives sin. He's also the God who knows how much sin that you have. When we consider these two proofs of his identity as a son of man, we consider them together, we recognize that Jesus is not just making an empty statement. He's not buying something sight unseen. When Jesus declares that this man's sin is forgiven, he knows exactly what he's dealing with. And if you're here today, you're doubting that God truly has forgiven you of your sins. You say, but he doesn't know what's in my heart. He doesn't really know the lack of value that I have. You're wrong. You see, Jesus sees the heart. Jesus is God. The fact that Jesus sees your heart, the real you, and no one else does. And yet he still invites you to come and to repent and to receive pardon is incredible. And if you're hearing me this morning, that offer is for you this morning. To repent of your sin and receive the pardon, Jesus knows your sin. And yet, he still invites you in. That Jesus forgives sin and reads the heart is all the background to this final miracle that Jesus offers here, that Mark records here in this passage this morning. And that is this that he heals the lame. And so, Jesus, the Son of Man, he forgives sin. Only God can do that. Jesus, the Son of Man, he reads the heart. Only God can do that. And finally, Jesus, the Son of Man, heals the lame. Only God can do that. There was a common thought in those days that disease and illness were almost always directly caused by sin in the life of the individual that bore the impairment. For instance, Jesus' disciples in John 9, when they saw a boy boy born blind, they were puzzled and they asked Jesus, who sinned? They're expecting Jesus to say, well, this man... Uh, this man uh, this, this, this man's parents did and that's why he was born blind or or this this God knew that this child was going to be a sinner and, and sin in some terrible way and so he, he struck him with with blindness. and this was the idea, although that wasn't the, the, the case in John chapter nine. it was this idea and and to be honest with you, it's not utterly wrong. So often it's partially true that the diseases, The untimely deaths, the struggles that we have in relationships, the failures in our lives, so often they do come our way because of our sin. Well, that's not always true. It's not always a direct relationship. Sometimes it is. It's even possible that in the life of this man, the disease, or whatever it has, maybe it was some sexually transmitted disease that wasn't unheard of in the day. That a sexually transmitted disease could actually leave you with paralysis. Maybe it was a drunken stupor. The man uh, was uh, walking and and, and drinking. Uh, that was what they would pull people over for in those days. Maybe he had some in some drunken stupor. He had fallen and and, and rendered himself paralyzed. We don't know the issue, but we do know this: that all sin. Can be tra- or all sin or all diseases, all struggles in our life can be traced back to sin. Whether it's directly traced back to your sin, or whether it's ultimately traced back to original sin, every single disease and difficulty that we face in this life today is a result of original sin—the sin that was passed on to us from our father Adam. So we can't be sure that this man's paralysis was caused by his sin, but it was caused by sin. And either way, I believe that this man sensed that his paralysis, his condition was brought upon him because of his own personal sin. That's just speculation, but that's what I believe. So it follows that if Jesus, listen, if he can remove the guilt of sin as he did there initially... And he can also remove the effects of sin. If if Jesus can remove the, the, the guilt of sin, he can also remove the effects of sin. Forgiveness and healing are both, listen, church, they're both the work of God. They're both the work of God. Only God can heal. Psalm 103, verses 2 to 5 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all of your iniquity, and listen, who heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, and who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2 says, But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I believe this is a spiritual healing, but it's also pointing to a physical one. Psalm 147 verse 3 says, speaking of God, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. And so if Jesus, it follows, is able to forgive sin because he's God, he's also able to Reverse the effects of sin because he is God. So his ability to heal this man validated his, his ability to forgive sins, and, and it ultimately approved, uh, proved that he was God, that he was the Son of Man. Look at, verse, uh, look at verse 10 again, where it says that Jesus was the Son of Man. He says, this is why I'm going to, to heal this man, that you may know, scribes, crowd, those who doubt, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is God. He humbled himself. He took on flesh. He is the one in Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is saying of himself that he was the one who would descend from heaven and be given dominion over all creation for all eternity, that he would forgive sin and that he would turn back the effects of sin under his rule and in his dominion. And so we see this morning Jesus And his identity clearly displayed. And I would argue that at the center of this story, with a spotlight shining on them is the scribes. Jesus introduces the paralytic. The the paralytic is healed. And what does he do? He believes, obviously, and he runs away. He runs off. He's overjoyed. He's carrying his mat. What about the crowd? Well, we find out there in, I think it's verse 11 or 12. What do they do? Well, they all go out amazed and glorifying God, saying, we never saw anything like that before. But what about the scribes? The scribes there that were introduced, what do they do? As I pointed out earlier, I believe that they were there on mission with the goal of finding the true identity of Jesus. Who was he? As they sit in the crowd And watch Jesus proclaim forgiveness of sins over this man as Jesus points them out verbally and says, I know what you're thinking and you're wrong. And then as Jesus proceeds to actually physically heal this man before their eyes, scribes have a choice to make. You see, they've seen that he knows the heart. They've seen that he forgives sin. They've seen that he heals the lame. There's only one conclusion that the scribes then can make. The ones who know the law, many of them almost by heart, if not by heart, they know the passages and psalms that I read just a moment ago. What is their response? Will they look to Jesus? Will they call him the Son of Man? Will they repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus? Will they receive the gospel? What will they do? We don't know. We don't know what these particular scribes do that day. I want to ask you the question that we would love to ask of the scribes this morning. What will you do? And so I ask you this morning, what will you do? We've seen this morning, as Mark clearly demonstrates for us, that Jesus truly is the Son of Man. He is God who took on flesh. He is God robed and humanity. What will you do? Will you hear his message this morning? Will you repent of your sin and place your faith in him? Mark chapter 1 verse 15 reports that Jesus's message was this, to repent and believe the gospel. So whether you're a member of Hagerstown Church, whether you're a child in our congregation, whether you're a neighbor that's tuning in and hearing what we're uh, bringing from the word of God this morning, the offer is there for you to do just that. To turn from your sin, the sin that isolates and the sin that kills, repent from it and believe the gospel. The gospel is this, that if you'll turn from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ, looking to his work on the cross, that you too can receive forgiveness and pardon and enter into the joy of the Lord. Folks, as we look at the end of this passage, it says this, the crowd walks out and says, we never saw anything like this before. You now, one of the sad things about that statement is they can never say that again because they have seen it. And as a result of you looking with me at this passage this morning, you too have seen it. You've seen the kingdom of God breaking through into time and space. So the question is, what will you do? Let me remind you that because Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Son of Man, we must repent and believe the gospel. I love you Hagerstown Church, you are sent.